And so, in order uh, to focus our attention on that, let's turn to John 19, uh, starting at verse 28, and we'll read to verse 42 about the death and burial of Jesus Christ. John 19, we'll begin at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness that his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with with the spices. It is the burial custom for the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So far, our reading of God's word. Now with Jesus' death and burial in mind, uh, let's sing the fitting words uh, for Christ and his suffering in the Psalm uh, Psalm 88, uh, stanzas 2 and 3. And we can see so clearly how these could be Christ's own words.
So in our second services, we're continuing to work through the Heidelberg Catechism. And this week, we get to Lord's Day 16. And this is our confession based on uh, what God reveals to us in his perfect and inerrant word. I'll read uh, Lord's Day 16, the questions and the answers. And please confess the answers together with me in your own hearts. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. This is our confession based on God's word. Brothers and sisters, uh, a couple of years ago, a lady walked into church with her grandson, and she came to our services for a few months. Uh, she even started attending a weekly Bible study with a number of our members. But suddenly, one week, this lady was gone. Uh, eventually, I managed to get in touch with her uh, and see how she was doing. Uh, we were quite worried about her when she disappeared on us. She was an older lady, and she wasn't in the best of health. But thankfully, we found out that she was fine. She told us, though, that she wasn't sure if she wanted to come back to church. Naturally, of course, I followed up. I asked her why that would be. And her answer was quite surprising to me. Now, you can think of a bunch of different answers, maybe what you might expect for why she wouldn't want to come back to church. Maybe she wasn't sure if Christianity was true. Maybe she just didn't like our church very much. She wanted to find another one. Maybe she didn't like the time commitment of all the Bible studies and worship services on Sundays. But in reality, she didn't have a problem with any of those things at all. What she said she didn't like, what was keeping her from coming back, is that she didn't like hearing about death. She didn't want to think about death. This week, I read a quote from a psychologist who said that we, as a culture, we seem to have an unwritten agreement with one another simply to pretend that death is never going to happen to us. We know death happens, but not to us. And that's strange, isn't it? Death happens to everyone. Often, death happens far too soon. And yet, this woman told us it was uncomfortable uh, to hear about death. And she didn't like it when at church we spoke about our death. And she especially didn't like how every week we'd talk again about Christ's death on the cross. 
And I had never really thought about that, but it is a little bit strange, isn't it? We do hear about death. We're reminded about it every week. Again, at least Christ's death, if not explicitly about our death. And in the confession we're going to sing together later, the Apostles' Creed, we sing about our Savior who came down, was crucified, dead, and buried. And so we'll be considering what we mean by that confession of faith today. That Jesus Christ was dead and buried specifically. And we'll look at this in two parts. First, we'll see the reality of Christ's death. And then secondly, we'll see the importance of Christ's death. So first of all, the reality of Christ's death. Now, one of my professors once mentioned in seminary, and it stuck with me for a while, is that when we think of the Apostles' Creed, what do we think of? We think that we're confessing a bunch of beliefs or or doctrines. And that's true, of course, but if you look closely at the Apostles' Creed, what you'll see is that in a very large part, what we're confessing is history. The Apostles' Creed consists largely of just statements of historical events. Think of the Creed. We say that we believe in creation, that we believe in Christ's conception, his birth by Mary, his suffering under Pilate, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And Bible commentators often mention this too, because non-Christians, they'll compare the Bible and our beliefs to ancient fables and myths and try and find some parallels. Uh, But Bible scholars, they'll rightly note that the Bible, if you think about it, it isn't written like that at all. The Bible, when you read it, is written as a historical document. And that is vitally important for our faith. Because think about your problems in life. Your greatest problem we heard a few weeks ago from our very conception. The problem of sin. The problem of its effects. The problem of disease and death. Are these uh, biggest problems of ours Are they fables? Are they myths? Are there problems something that can be addressed by a parable or some teaching? Or are problems real, concrete, historical realities? Our guilt before God, our inevitable death, is a result of the realest, most genuine, physical, historical problem in the world. And so we confess each week again, the solution offered in Jesus Christ is a real physical, historical salvation. Praise God that it is. And commentators, even the Apostle Paul, rightly note that if Jesus' death and his eventual resurrection did not actually historically happen, then we have no hope in the world. We are of all men most to be pitied. Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, these words, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is of first importance, Paul says, and this is why we always talk about it time and time again. Paul doesn't give any hint this could be myth or a nice story. It's not. Paul is basing his whole life, and actually he'll eventually give up his life for the truth of these events, because these truths change everything. Uh, I imagine the Corinthians probably didn't love talking about death when Paul got there either. They probably had the same uh, unspoken agreement as we have today. Let's just not talk about it. Let's not think about it. But when Paul got there, he told them the truth. 
He talked about sin. He talked about how death is coming to each of us unless God intervenes. And how we all deserve eternal death. If not for a Savior who stepped into history, who came and laid down his life and truly died in our place. Paul then goes on in that passage to list, even by name, a number of eyewitnesses to these things. And we see the same thing in John chapter 19, which we read together. There we don't read something that starts with uh, a long, long time ago in some place very far away. We don't read some kind of a, a myth or a story. Instead, we read the opposite. We read about Jesus being publicly executed on a Roman cross. He said he was thirsty, and guards gave him sour wine to drink. He cried out, it is finished, and gave up his spirit, indicating this was the plan. This was the solution for your sin and mine, for our salvation. And then he really died. And we hear that all the time. We need to be reminded about this historical reality. If someone had made up this story, you might think that immediately Jesus would come back to life and proclaim victory right away. You might think the disciples who were missioning in action, uh, that they would come back as heroes. But this isn't written as a Marvel movie. It's written as history. Jesus was dead. He was lifeless. As one commentator says, for the first time, he seemed to be doing nothing at all. He was gone. His spirit went back to his father. He was dead, and until the third day, he stayed dead. For the most part, the disciples, nowhere to be found. Maybe he was just another false messiah. John himself, we read, he was there, but he stayed at a distance. The Jews went to Pilate, and they asked if they might have uh, the, the legs of those on the cross broken uh, so that they would die faster and they could take their bodies away. And this, historically, it makes a ton of sense. The Jews knew the usual Roman practice was to leave crucified bodies on display as a warning to others. But the Jewish leaders, they also knew Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 to 23. There we read, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And it's still a shocking story, because Judas, at least, if you think of Judas, Judas had the shame after betraying Jesus to run away and hide for what he had done. But the Jewish leaders here are concerned with keeping the small matters of the law, even after they had just created the greatest injustice the world has ever known. They had just crucified the Messiah, the one they were waiting for. But yet they go to Pilate, they ask for him to be killed more quickly. The guards who had overseen likely many crucifixions before, they came and probably from a distance they can tell he's dead already. They're surprised it's so fast, but he's dead. But they need to do their job, and so to ensure that he's dead before they take him down. They pierced our Savior's side with a spear, and blood and water came out, confirming he was really, truly dead. And far from being a myth or a fiction, John says, I saw it. In verse 35, we read John uh, almost certainly talking about himself. He said, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. He goes on to explain, These things took place in fulfillment of Scripture from hundreds and hundreds of years before. This was God's plan for your salvation and mine. Not one of his bones was broken, uh, John says. They looked on him who they had pierced. Again, we might expect in a story Jesus' disciples to make a, a heroic rather, appearance, but they didn't. 
They continued to hide and cower. But John wants us to know for sure that this was true. So again, he names two individuals. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea came and took away his body, John says. And Nicodemus came too to embalm him. And John doesn't spell this out for us, but it's very important to realize this is a fulfillment of one of the most precise prophecies in the Old Testament. The intention for Jesus would have been to have him and these criminals beside him buried in an unmarked tomb eventually. But there was an allowance for family or friends to claim a body. And so Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, he steps up and buries him in a garden in a new tomb in which no one had been laid, buried among the rich. And this too fulfills prophecy from hundreds of years earlier. We read in Isaiah 53, something which we know for certain was written hundreds of years before the fact. It sounds like it was written after the fact. This is the NIET translation. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. This was God's plan in history for our salvation, and it couldn't be any other way. Jesus cried out, asking if there was another way. The answer was no. This was the plan for your salvation and mine. And it's not written as a myth or a parable or just some story. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, isn't we can save ourselves by acts of religion. It's that Jesus Christ needed to physically die and come back to life so he could be saved. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man and a member of the Sanhedrin. And he's mentioned by name. And I think the implication is clear. The people, the original audience, if they doubted this, they could go and talk to him. They could talk to his family. Now, don't just ask me, John is essentially saying. Though John himself would stake his life on it and undergo fierce persecution for what he was teaching. Ask Joseph if Christ really died. And we have to imagine Joseph could have told you. He could have told you that he saw the cross of Jesus Christ lowered before his eyes. He saw the nails pried out of his hands and his feet. Commentators tell us uh, Joseph of Arimathea likely had to massage Jesus' stiff arms to get them down to his sides so they could bring his lifeless body to the tomb. Ask Nicodemus, John is basically saying. He's likely fairly well known himself. He was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews as well. And he helped bury Jesus too. He'll tell you he was dead. He was dead. We saw him. We felt him. We wrapped, arms, uh, we wrapped grave clothes around him. He was dead. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever had the hard event, the hard life circumstance of having a loved one die, then you know there can often be a time of shock. But at the burial, things change, don't it? The burial, in a sense, it brings closure. It's done. It's over. And that's what we confess. That Jesus Christ was dead and buried. That's what Joseph and Nicodemus could confess. He was dead, and we buried him. We bound him with linen cloths and placed him in the tomb ourselves. And it's fascinating, we just need to mention quickly, that it's Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who step up to do this. We don't know very much about either of these men, but we do, what we do know about both of them for sure is mentioned in this text. Both of them previously were scared. Joseph of Arimathea, our text says, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. Likewise, Nicodemus had come to Jesus previously, but only at night, again, likely because he was scared of the repercussions of following Christ. And it's bizarre, isn't it? These two men previously were afraid of being seen with Jesus, but now that Jesus was condemned, now that Jesus was condemned by the Romans, put to death, uh, turned uh, against by the people, 
Now Joseph needs to step up in public and go to Pilate. He needs to ask for this crucified criminal's body, uh, condemned uh, by the Romans and hated by the Jews. And Nicodemus too, he needed to come out with spices to help bury him. Pilate was willing to let them do it because he didn't actually find anything wrong with Jesus. But still, uh, as the disciples fled in fear, these two men, they step out in faith, and in dangerous faith, and in costly faith. The grave and the spices we can see here, they were financially costly. This cost them something to come out for Christ. But more than that, we need to realize this would be costly for their reputation, perhaps even from their safety, from the religious elite in Israel at the time. And here we see a challenge to the disciples for sure, but also a challenge to us. Because the disciples stayed nearby when it was easy. And often I think we need to admit, we stick nearby Jesus and often it's quite easy to do, isn't it? In a lot of different ways. But brothers and sisters, what about when it gets extremely, extremely costly? Then are we committed to Christ? Are we willing to give to him? What are we willing to give up for him? I think often we're bold enough to stand up in church. But how about others? Are we willing to stand up elsewhere alone when no one else seems to be standing up? Will we stand up for Jesus Christ? By God's grace, these two men, they do. Often we're willing to stand by Jesus if it doesn't hurt our wallet, our way of life, or our reputation, or our livelihood too much. But this is important. The call of Christianity is a radical one, even an offensive one. And I'm sure I saw that in my friend uh, as well that I mentioned earlier. Uh, I wasn't so sure she wanted to hear it. Uh, We believe in a crucified Savior we hear about time and time again. A Savior who really lived his life, died his death for us. Who had to suffer and die because there is no other way to save sinful people like you and me from eternal death. Christianity then is a call not just to believe in a, a, a dead and then risen Savior. But Christianity, Jesus was very clear, is a call to come and die ourselves. To turn from the world, to turn from ourselves in a sense, and run to Jesus Christ instead. Why didn't my old friend like hearing about death, and especially about Christ's death? I, in my conversation, I suspected that part of the reason was because she started to realize. She had just thought this was another thing she could tack onto her life. She didn't have to change anything else. She could just add Jesus to her collection as sort of a security blanket. But more and more it became true, hearing this call of this dead and resurrected Jesus Christ. That's not how this works. This demands our soul, our life, our all. This demands everything. This Jesus comes and in his grace, he lays down his life that we might live. And then he calls us to pick up our cross too and follow him. And by God's grace, Joseph and Nicodemus, though they were afraid, though they were imperfect, in Christ's death, they seem to find their life. And so we as Christians confess the reality of Christ's death and all the demands that makes on our life. But we also confess the importance of Christ's death. And that's our second and our final point. Someone once told me a story of a man who came to faith uh, reading through the Bible. And maybe you've heard stories like that too. It happens uh, more often. Uh, But often people uh, come to faith reading through the Bible by being gripped by a particularly beautiful uh, text. Maybe you can think of Martin Luther. He was transformed by the profound statement, The righteous shall live by faith. But what convicted this other man that I heard of as he read through the Bible was when he was reading through a genealogy. You know, the part that most of us, I think, usually skip to our shame. 
This gentleman, he was reading through Genesis, and he read about the fall into sin, and the promise of death and life away from God, a second death as well. He came to understand that. And then later in God's word, he came to these long genealogies, and the life of each person, sometimes lives that were centuries long, they were summarized in just a couple of words, and then the refrain afterwards, and he died, and he died, and he died. That gripped his heart. It challenged him. Think of all of human history. Think of the millions, the billions of people living their whole lives, summarized in a couple words, and they died, and they died, and they died. And that's the importance of Jesus Christ's death and burial. He is the one sent by God himself to break the cycle of eternal death. The son of Adam, the son of God, as we read about in the New Testament, he came into the world. And though he himself was without sin, he had no cause for which to die for himself. He willingly bore the full weight of temporal, physical, eternal death. The physical death we as a society would like to pretend it doesn't exist. We don't want to talk about it. But the spiritual death too. The spiritual death that I think often we don't like to talk about. The agonies of hell, of an eternity apart from Christ, that when we hear about them, we start to shudder. We don't want to talk about that. Christ bore the physical death, and he bore the spiritual death willingly too. He bore it all, and he was laid in a tomb. And as we'll talk about next week, he rose again victorious over it all. And this is the heart of our faith. That Jesus conquered death, the final, the greatest enemy, the one the world shudders to talk about. The physical death that destroys our bodies, the spiritual death shredding apart our souls. Jesus conquered us all, and he conquered us radically. And brothers and sisters, it's uncomfortable to talk about hell, to talk about death, but we need to talk about it. If you think about it, naturally speaking, my friend, and this culture is right. Death is a terrifying reality. And on our own, there is nothing we can do about it. Billions of humans who went before can testify the same. The best thing we could do on our own is ignore it and hope it doesn't come to us, but it will. That's true uh, for those who know only about physical death. For us who realize not just physical death, but suffering and decay, all of it is a result of sin, leading only to the second death, spiritual death, with weeping and gnashing his teeth. It should be something we all shudder to talk about. But brothers and sisters, that's not the end of the story. Jesus Christ came, and he conquered death, and for those who believe in him, by his victory, he transformed death. And his victory over death is so complete that we're, it transforms how we talk about death and hell. It's an enemy, absolutely, death is. And at times, we, as Christ's people, we fear it for sure. But we can talk about death because our death, brothers and sisters, will never look like Christ's death. A few weeks ago, maybe you remember, we heard about how in all of our sorrow and affliction, Christ can sympathize with us. He knows our pain. But here we have a great hope. Because while Christ knows all of our pain, we will never fully know his pain that he suffered on our behalf. Unless Christ returns, we will die. And we'll entrust our souls to the Father, even as he did in this text. But you and I will never experience the hellish agony that he did. The guilt and punishment for your sin and mine, every sin that we have committed, every sin we do commit, every sin you and I ever will commit, 
has been paid for in full. All of our sin, our sinful nature, is dead and buried with Christ. And we need to talk about that today. And we need to talk about that every day. Because that's a remarkable truth. That's a truth that's going to transform our lives. Confessing when I fall into sin, that sin is dead and buried in Christ. And I live a new life unto God in Christ. We will never experience the punishment of death. Christ took the punishment. And his great love, as one commentary said, Christ had hell come to him, so we will never go to it. And as our confession says, uh, as we deal with sin and pain in this life, we can actually look to death, to Christ's death, for hope. We read this earlier in the explanation of what it means that Christ descended into hell. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his life, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. And by Christ's overwhelming victory over the grave, over death, that was once a great curse. Now, brothers and sisters, the confession makes so clear based on Scripture that death is no longer a curse for us. But now death, Christ's victory is so radical, now death is actually a blessing. As our confession puts it, our death is not a payment for sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. And that is an incredible victory. Someone who can completely transform death from a curse into a blessing. Christ is our incredible Savior. So thinking of the former dread of death, the dread of death that still, I think, often torments us and certainly torments the world. Consider the remarkable words of Paul in Philippians 1, based on Christ's complete victory that he trusted in. Paul says there, My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is a gain. Now, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two, because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. What a Savior God has provided in the historical death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that now death, which was a curse from the beginning, we can talk about it with Paul like that. In Jesus Christ, death is better by far. Praise God. I love the way that D.L. Moody once said it. He told uh, some of his followers, One day you're going to read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive in that day than I ever have been before. And there's one more thing we need to mention regarding the importance of the death and burial of Christ. The profound fact that we are dead and buried with him already now. I once heard a story of an elderly pastor who was nearing the end of his life. And so nearing the end of his life, he spent a lot of time talking with others about what it was he was looking forward to about heaven. And I wonder what you would answer about that question. What do you look forward to about heaven? There's a whole lot to look forward to, isn't there? And so they spent a lot of time talking. They talk about never-ending life being more alive than we ever had been before, with no more sickness or sorrow or pain. They talked about being reunited with loved ones who had gone on before, reunited with wonderful saints from the Bible. 
Most of all, of course, they talked about being with their great God and seeing Christ face to face as they were created to do living in God's presence. And yet after one of these discussions, this man was asked, which of these things, what are you most excited for? And on that day, at least he had a different answer. One which is the, the, the focus of the catechism here as well. What he said he really couldn't wait for was to be once and for all free from sin. Now this man, this, this pastor, he looked back on his life. He saw year after year the way that his sin had hurt him. The way that his sin had hurt others, especially those he loved most. The way his sin had hurt the reputation of his Lord. And most of all, how year after year, though God had been so faithful, time and time again, he sinned against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All his life, he had never been able to fully stop. And that is what I long for, he said. I want to stop sinning. I want to stop sinning against others. I want to stop sinning, most of all, against Christ. And as our catechism says, our death is no longer a punishment for sin. Christ bore all of that. Now death is an end to sin. Do you long for an end to sin? There's some more good news if we do, and we should. We don't have to wait. We do need to wait for perfection, of course. But the end of sin starts now. By faith, we believe when Christ died, in a very real sense, you and me and all who believe in him, we died with him. As the Catechism says, referencing Scripture, through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. And in this way, Christ's death is not just good news for the future, it's good news right now. It should change our lives right now. We should live as those whose sinful nature is dead and buried with Christ, uh, God and his spirit helping us. By the power of Christ and his spirit, we can flee sin already now and begin to look once more, more and more like the God who made us, more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so we fight and we kill sin and in Christ's power, we begin to overcome. And we don't do it out of guilt or obligation, but out of great joy and overwhelming thankfulness. We have no guilt in life and no fear in death. That's the power of Christ in us. And my friend, she didn't fully get this. I hope one day she does. She was attracted to our church community. She loved the fellowship. She loved the friendship. She loved the love. She loved the joy. But she didn't understand that all of those things flowed out of the fact that we're people who are ready to talk about death and burial. Our death and burial to come, we even look forward to it. But most of all, Christ's death and burial. There we have a great hope. We have a great evidence that God loves us, that he forgives us enough to send his son, enough for Christ to lay down his life for people like me and you. How can we not talk about this death and our death with him? Amen. Let's sing in response. Hymn 41, stanzas one, two, and three.